All right. Well, we are jumping back into our series, Binge the Bible, today. I've been taking a look at the Bible from 30,000 feet, or rather, we're studying the whole story of the Bible rather than taking it little parts at a time. We want to know what does each book of the Bible tell us about God? The Bible is a story about God, and the more we understand His story, the more we understand His character, His nature, and the, the story of the relationship between God and humanity, the better we understand ourselves. And so that's what this series is all about. We're taking one book at a time, uh, one week at a time. So first week we did Genesis, second week we did Exodus, and so on. And now we're all the way up to Joshua. And the story so far has been a good story. In the beginning, God creates everything, and he creates humanity. And he has this intimate, personal relationship with humanity that he wants with humanity. But he also gives humanity free choice, because without choice, it's not a relationship. And then... The devil slithers up alongside humanity and tempts them into sin. Sin is anything that goes against and in opposition to the will of God. So sin enters the story in Genesis chapter 3. And the world gets worse and worse for a time as people get further and further from the presence of God. Until one day God makes a promise to a man named Abram. And he tells him that he is going to create a nation out of him. And through that nation he will bless the world. He tells Abram that he's going to use him to be in, in relationship with humanity for the rest of human history. And there, beginning in Genesis chapter 11, we see the story come into focus that we're still telling today. And so Abraham has several generations later, his people, his descendants are called the Israelites or the Hebrew people. And they're in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. Well, at the end of that time, God sends a man named Moses to go and bring them out of slavery, and they're delivered from it, and they take them across the Red Sea and into the desert and to the mountain of God at Mount Sinai, where God gives them the Ten Commandments and the law, and he tells them to build the Ark of the Covenant, which is a wooden box covered in gold, and on the top is what's called the mercy seat, and in that place, the presence, the real physical presence of God would come to rest. He tells them to build a tabernacle around it, which is a portable temple. And that tabernacle moves with them from the place to place. And everywhere it goes, so goes the presence of God. And so the people now have God dwelling among them, and it's a good thing. And they're moving around, and God uh, takes them and Moses up to the promised land to enter into the promised land. But when they get there, they send 12 spies in. And those 12 spies go into the promised land. And 10 of them come back and say, it's no good. The people are giants there. We're like grasshoppers to them. They're going to squish us. And two of those spies came back and said, no, the land is ripe and ready for the taking. God is already delivering it into our hands. And those two men were named Joshua and Caleb. And we're going to tell one of their stories today. All throughout these books of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see this constant refrain of the people of Israel rebelling against God. They rebel against God. They try to go their own way. They act in fear. They act in self-interest. And so God brings justice and judgment on them for that because he is a just God and there is justice for sin. And then he, after he brings justice, he brings compassion and grace and redemption and relationship. 
relationship. It is the pattern of Scripture all throughout, and especially we see it in that book of Numbers as people rebel, and then God brings relationship back to them. And then they rebel again, and then God brings justice again, and then he brings redemption and relationship back again. It's the pattern. And in Leviticus, it's all this book of the law where God is telling them to be holy and set apart from the world around them. He's giving them these laws so that an unholy person can approach a holy God. And all of this happens. And then in Deuteronomy, at the very end of it, the people have been wandering for 40 years. After the spies came back out of the land of Canaan, they said, we can't do this. Two of them said, we can. And the 10 won over the hearts and minds of the people. The hearts and minds of the people said, we're not going into Canaan. We will die there. The people are far too large. We will never be able to take it. And so instead they rebelled against Moses and against the leaders of Israel and said, let's go back to Egypt where they had cucumbers and garlic. And that's not what happens. God brings judgment to them and he tells them that you're going to wander for 40 years in the desert. And the only two people from your generation who are going to enter into the promised land will be Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you will die off in the desert and your children will take this territory instead. That's where Deuteronomy ends. Moses passes away on Mount Nebo and he hands the torch over to Joshua. And today we're looking at the story in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua. This book was written around 1380 BC with the last chapter being written by the high priest Eleazar, uh, or so we think. We don't really know. We just know that the last chapter wasn't written by Joshua because Joshua is dead in the last chapter. So we just know that he had a ghostwriter because he was dead. Joshua was one of the two spies that said the lamb was ready for him 40 years prior, one of only two Israelites who were adults when they left Egypt. When the Israelite people came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, Joshua was 40 years old. And so now Joshua is 80 years old as he takes over as the leader of Israel to go lead these people into battle. He's not exactly a spring chicken. Uh, he is starting as the leader of Israel advanced in age. Uh, I don't want to call him old, but let's just see what the Bible has to say. Joshua 13.1 says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. He was 80 years old and yet God had not yet done the biggest things that he had planned for him. I don't know who you are today or what age you are coming in here, but I do know that wherever you sit, God has more prepared for you. The spelling of Joshua in, in Hebrew is Yeshua. Uh, that is the same name that Jesus has in Hebrew. Joshua shares a name with Jesus. Um, Jesus is a Greek name, and it's an interpretation, a Greek interpretation of this same name, Yeshua. Uh, Yeshua means in Yahweh is salvation. Joshua was born with the name Hosea, which means salvation, just means salvation. And it was not changed to, it was changed to Yeshua when he was sent into Canaan as a spy. Moses changed his name from Hosea, which just means salvation, to Yeshua when he went into Canaan to remind him that it was God who would give him salvation. 
that God would be the one who would deliver him. God would be the one that would bring salvation. And so Joshua shares a name with Jesus. That's the author. That's the timeline. That's the background. Now let's get into the story of Joshua today. This story is broken down into four parts. And the first part is entering the land, entering the land. Uh, Chapters one through five tell this part of the story. We transition from Joshua to Moses, and it's a strong transition. Chapter one, verse one says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. If I'm Joshua, I'm leaving that conversation ready to go bear hunting with a switch. I'm telling you right now, how exciting is this? He's just, he's telling him, you're everywhere you step, I'm going to give you that territory. I'm going to be with you. And Joshua's probably thinking about how awesome this speech is and playing it through in his mind. And he's like, that was so great. I'm so, he said, be courageous a lot though, didn't he? It kind of felt like he said it a lot of times. Was he worried about something? Is there something I should know? It felt like he said courage, courage. He said it four different times. That's a lot of times to say courageous in two paragraphs, isn't it? It's a lot. And then he even said, do not be afraid at one moment. Why was there such an emphasis on being courageous? Well, for the last 40 years, God had been providing food uh, through manna every single day. The people did not have to provide for themselves. God provided for them. They would wake up and bread from heaven would be on the ground and they would eat it. And then the next day there would be more on the ground. On top of that, everywhere that they went, they were following the presence of God in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. They didn't have to wonder where to go. They didn't have to wonder if they were following God in the right direction, if they were going where God wanted them to go. They didn't have that question. They just had to look at the giant pillar of fire and go, I guess we're going that way. That's where the fire's going. We'll just follow that scary column of fire. And that's what we'll do. And they had that for 40 years. They had that kind of assurance And then when Moses died, the column of fire and the column of smoke were gone. And just as soon as they got on the other side of the Jordan River, God stopped providing manna. And he said, you're going to have to provide for yourself now. I've been feeding you for all these years, and now it's time for you, my people, to learn how to feed yourselves. 
They have to work the land again, and they've got to figure out how to do all those things. They've never done any of that. and They've got to learn how to hunt. They've got to learn how to forage. They've got to learn how to provide for themselves, and they've got to know that the direction they're going is the right direction by faith and not by sight. Because all of this time, they've been walking by sight. And now it is time for the people of God to walk by faith. And walking by faith takes a lot of courage. It's a lot scarier to go forward in faith than it is by sight. So God says, be courageous. Joshua sends spies into the land. And uh, in Moses' time, 40 years prior, it was a very public event. Here we are at the promised land. Everybody gather around. We're going to send 12 spies, one from every tribe. Let's choose the best man for it. And it was a very public thing. When Joshua does it, because that, that didn't go so great, he's doing it secretly and in private. He picks two people and two people only because last time, 10 were wrong, two were right. And so he said, we're going to just cut out the middle man and send two faith-filled men into the land to scout it out. Chapter 2 of Joshua tells the story of how these men were pursued in the land by the king of Jericho. And they were saved by Rahab, a prostitute. She hid, him, she hid them in her home and lowered them down the wall so that they could escape. And in return, they spared her life when they took the city. In fact, Rahab became folded in to the people of God. She converted to Judaism. She married a Jewish man, and in a few generations, her descendant, Boaz, would marry a foreign woman named Ruth, and they would have a son named Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a son named David, who would go on to kill Goliath and eventually have a descendant named Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, God can still redeem you, he can use you, and he can do amazing things with your life. Joshua chapter 2 is an incredible testament within the Bible that no matter who you are, God can use you. Joshua chapter 3 brings them to the Jordan River. All of them, millions of people. And the Jordan River is at flood stage. That means that it is four to five times wider than normal. Of all the times of year to come to the river to be brought here by God, they come to the Jordan River at the one time of year when it is at flood stage, the time of harvest. And they're a little bit worried about that. How are we going to cross the river? It's a massive, deep body of water. And on the other side is Canaan, which is hostile territory. People who would be waiting to go to war with the people of Israel. Surely they would attack us as we try to cross this body of water. And God says, don't worry about this because I am going before you. And he decides to renew his covenant with Israel and to lay a, uh, a blessing on on Joshua by repeating a miracle that he used with the previous generation. Joshua chapter 3 verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. And so the presence of God goes first, not soldiers, not leaders, it is the Ark of the Covenant. And these guys go into the water, and here's what happens. Verse 16, the water upstream stopped flowing, 
It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood on, stood, stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And so for the second time, the Israelites cross a body of water on dry land. And this is an amazing, incredible moment for the Israelite people. And it's a strategic moment on God's behalf for the people of Canaan. That town upriver, Adam, is a small town in one of the other kingdoms of Canaan that Joshua is going to lead the people to war with. And they're just having a normal day going about their business, you know, and working at the field or whatever. And all of a sudden, the river just stops flowing and piles up in a great big heap and it dries up on the other side and they hear word that the Israelite army is crossing on dry ground and a mighty fear and terror grips the land of Canaan because they know that God really is with these people. The effect that this Jordan River crossing has on the people of Canaan is an immense fear. They are terrified now. Something is coming that they will not be able to resist. As they're crossing on dry ground, God tells them to go and take 12 stones, one person from every tribe, to go and get a stone out of the middle of the river to make a marker for future generations to remember what God did for them. It is important for us to see this story and to think and remember that when God does amazing things in our lives, when he delivers us, redeems us, performs miracles in our lives, we've got to mark those moments so that when our children say, Daddy, what is that? I can say, this is what God did then. So they cross the river, they make the altar, they get to the other side, they camp out and they're preparing for battle. It's like that scene in Braveheart. They're painting blue paint on their faces. There's this massive army. They've got weapons. They probably are beating some drums. They're getting excited. You know, war is coming and they are prepared for battle. They're fired up. God's performing miracles. It is an amazing time. They've got momentum. They are in enemy territory, prepared for battle. But God says, hold on a second. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Now that you're here and you're vulnerable and you're ready to attack, I want all the fighting men to undergo a little procedure, a very Jewish procedure, a very sensitive procedure, circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision, we, we actually have a picture. If you'll pull that up. <laughs> Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It set these people apart in an intimate way from all the other people on the earth. It has a lot of significance that I don't have time to get into this morning. The question is, why is right now the time to perform hundreds of thousands of circumcisions? Why not back on the other side of the river when they had a natural barrier between them and all their enemies? Why not way back in the desert? Why are we doing this right now? We'll be sitting ducks for all of our enemies. Well, the answer is they were disobedient. They should have done it as babies, and they did not. And now, before they take this land and enter the promise that God is asking them to take, he wants them to take this major step of faith to show that they are truly committed to being his people. 
And so they do it. They do it. They make some knives and they go around and adult men get circumcised. It's terrifying. They do it at a place called Gibeath uh, Ha'araloth, which means, and it's a Hebrew name, it means the hill of foreskins. So you should, if you're ever in Israel, it would be a great place to visit. So they do it, and it's in the Bible. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Okay. And they sat there for a long time waiting on, on everybody to heal. And then once everybody was healed, then and only then could they move into the second part of the story, conquering the land, conquering the land. Chapters 5 through 11 tells the story of the people of Israel conquering the promised land, taking the land of Canaan, the land that God promised for them, set aside for them, and said would deliver into their hands. This is not unoccupied territory. It is occupied territory that is filled with kings. And so there is a fight to take the promised land. Because it's here, in this place, in that land, that God was going to establish the people that are going to play an essential role in his plan to bring the whole world to salvation. It all happens here. It's a strategically placed kingdom, territory in this place that God would use to bring the Messiah into the world. It all began with the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jer uh, Joshua has this burning bush moment. That's a song from Sunday school. That's what we used to call G kids. Uh, Joshua has a burning bush moment. He goes to survey the walls of Jericho and he encounters there the commander of the Lord's armies, the angel of the Lord in all of his glory. Joshua's terrified. He bows down. He doesn't know what to do. And the angel has instructions for Joshua. Tells him, this is how you're going to take Jericho. You and your people are going to march around the walls of the city for seven days with the ark and the priests and the worship leaders up front. And then on the seventh day, march around the walls seven times, blow your trumpets, let out a loud war cry, and all the walls are going to come crashing down. This sounds like the most insane plan of attack of all time. The people of Jericho are terrified when Israel comes and camps out in front of their walls. But then, the, instead of doing normal siege tactics, which are building up embankments around them and, and scaling the walls and taking a time to starve out the people, and it's, all these normal siege tactics are ignored, instead they just start marching around the walls. And the people of Jericho are like, well, I guess this is their plan. I guess this is what they, and the next day they do it again. And they're like, okay, well, this is starting to freak us out a little bit. And the next day they do it again. And, you know, they've got the pastors all walking up front. They've got the Ark of the Covenant going. The worship leaders are walking in their skinny jeans and they're just going around <laughs> the wall. And then on the seventh day, uh, the people are very confused. You know, they're scared. They're wondering, what is this all about? And the seventh day, something different happens. They march around it seven times. Seven times they march around Jericho, and then they sound the trumpets, and they let out a huge war cry. And it says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, when the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. And so everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Now, Joshua tells us that as the people took the city, they were instructed to slaughter all the people and the livestock, to not leave a single person living. 
that's always been a tough one for me. I've always kind of avoided this area of Joshua. If I'm being honest, my, the battle of Jericho is my least favorite thing in scripture. Why not allow the people to surrender and join the Israelites? Why not bring some of the children in? Why not live in their land under a new government? What, what about adding to the 72,000 beef cattle? And the answer, whether it's easy to swallow or not, is that God was setting the table for what he was going to do. It wasn't just establishing a government. He was creating the right environment for his word and his ways to persist for all time, all the way up to now. That's why holiness was so important. These people be completely set apart and removed from the world around them. When people in this era and in every area coexist, their cultures combine and make something new. God was creating a culture that was holy and set apart for him. So he told the Israelites to remove everything that was there so they could build something new that was holy and set apart and something that would persist. That's the answer. Maybe it still doesn't all make sense to you. This week we lost a great pastor, Pastor Tim Keller uh, died. And Tim Keller had a quote, famous quote where he said, if you understand and agree with everything that God does and says, then you may not be worshiping God, you may be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. The idea is that God is so much bigger than us that we are not going to understand everything that he does and everything that happens in scripture. It's just not meant to be that way. But we know from the whole story of scripture that God is good and compassionate and gracious and that he sees the story in ways that you and I can't. And so this is what happens, uh, except that Israel didn't follow those instructions completely. There was a man named Achan who kept some plunder from the temples in Jericho, all the things that they were supposed to either destroy or give to the priests to be set aside for God. As a result, in the next battle that they fought, they lost despite having a much larger army. So God told Joshua to do an inventory, and he found out that this man, Achan, had stolen things from Jericho. Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, a big old bar of gold, I coveted them and I took them, and they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. This man just had a penchant for a nice fluffy robe. These items they recovered, HM is brought to justice and they go back to the place that they lost the battle and they get a victory. This conquest goes on through chapter 11 with some really incredible miracles along the way. There are so many victories all throughout it. In chapter 10, Joshua and the army are fighting a battle in the sun. They're fighting a battle against a great enemy and they just know that if they have a little bit longer to fight this battle in daylight, they will have the victory on this particular day. So Joshua asks God if he would give them more daylight to fight this battle. And so the Bible says in Joshua, Joshua 10, that God caused the sun to stand still so that they could get the victory. That is an insane story. I, I don't understand how that works in the laws of science or the laws of physics, but who knows? Maybe God stopped time itself. This is a good reminder, this story right here in Joshua 10, of who exactly God is. 
He is the Lord over everything and all things created are subject to him. To me, it's a reminder that even though I may not understand it all, like the battle of Jericho, God is still God and I am not. It's not my place to understand everything. God is good and compassionate and gracious and the whole of scripture testifies to it. And his power is over everything. In chapters 12 through 13, we see a list of all the kings defeated by Joshua and the Israelites. And then in chapter 13, we move on into the next section, section number three, the distribution of the land. After the land's been conquered, it's divided among the 12 tribes and it begins to take shape as a nation. There's over a million people who are a part of Israel. And so they fill out and spread across the whole region. Some stay on the other side of the Jordan and settle there, but most find places all around the land that is today Jordan and Israel. They establish cities that are just for the Levites, places where people will go to worship, to be led by priests, whole towns that are focused on knowing God. They establish cities of refuge, which is an ancient system of protecting the accused until a trial could be held. They set up a framework for a government that firmly establishes God as the head of the government. It's called a theocracy. In the next book, Judges will tell us all about how that operated. And so we end Joshua with the nation of Israel firmly established in the land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years prior. And that's when we move into the final aspect of Joshua, the final part of the book. Number four, the covenant renewed. The covenant renewed. In Joshua chapter 23, Joshua makes his final speech. He says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled and not one has failed. He reiterates in this speech the call of God to worship him only the promise of God to make them flourish as long as that's what they do. And the people answer and say, we will worship God only. If you've read Judges, that is a lie. Joshua responds by making his declaration. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before all of our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. The Lord drove out the nation, drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in this land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. They've said their wedding vows. The covenant is renewed, and now God is preparing to do new things with his people. And that's where Joshua leaves us. So here's four takeaways from the book of Joshua today. Number one is this. Walking by faith requires courage. 
For decades, those people were able to walk by sight. And they proved that even that was hard for him. Even though we, we think, man, if I could just see more evidence of God in my life, it would be so much easier for me to believe. And the book of Numbers is a good proof that that is not true. Because even though these people were eating bread from heaven and seeing the presence of God in fire and smoke, they still had trouble believing. And now they're having to navigate by sight. Not navigate by sight, but navigate by faith instead of by sight. The physical proof is gone and the people are required to walk by faith. So God tells Joshua over and over and over, be strong and courageous because it takes courage to walk by faith. When God calls you to a bigger purpose in this life, he always calls you to do it by faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. God's calling you to do something big in your life and you're looking at how scary it is and how it doesn't make sense and all these different reasons why you don't know if you should or not. I want you to know that God will call you to do things that are scary, that don't make sense, that terrify you, and that you don't know how they're gonna work out, but we move by faith and not by sight. Whatever God is calling you to do, be courageous. Second thing is this, your past does not have to dictate your future. Rahab is mentioned multiple times in the story of Scripture in various genealogies, including the genealogy of Jesus. How she lived her life up to the moment she met those spies did not dictate the outcome of her life. She was a prostitute. Who knows what happened in her life that led her to that place? It couldn't have been a fun story to share. Maybe she thought that where she had landed was it. It wasn't going to get any better. Whatever her life had done to her up to that day, she probably thought that was as, as far as it was going to go. But it only took one day of faithfulness to let her entire legacy be changed. One day. God would use her because of one day of choosing to be faithful to him to bring about the very line that would lead to the Messiah, the one who would deliver the world. If God can do that with Rahab the prostitute, imagine what he could do with you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It doesn't matter who you were this morning. God can still do something spectacular with you this afternoon. Third thing is this. Your present can prepare your future. Your past can be forgiven, but a lifetime of faithfulness and good decisions today will set you up for a spectacular tomorrow. I remember growing up in the 90s in church, we always had people come and speak to youth groups and stuff, and they'd tell you these horrible stories. They'd be like, yeah, man, I was on crank speed, alcohol, methamphetamines. I was driving down the interstate at 190 hours, miles per hour one day, and an angel appeared in the seat next to me. And now I follow Jesus, and I'm all clean. Praise God. And you'd be like, wow, that is awesome. You know, and your kid be like, yeah, man, I got into more fights in prison than you would believe. Like, wow. 
And uh, I remember that you'd hear these all the time, and it kind of it kind of made you feel like if you were growing up in church and living that life, you were like, oh, man, I'm, I'm done. one time when I was five, I stole a gumball, you know, from one of my sisters and never confessed to it. Maybe I have seen some things, you know. I remember hearing that and thinking, man, I gotta, I gotta go get me one of those testimonies. That's what I did. And I can tell you on the other side of that, it would have been a lot better to be faithful all of my life. Uh, Joshua and his story is a story of steady faithfulness. He comes out of Israel, or comes out of Egypt with faith. He goes through the land of Canaan as one of the spies with faith. He comes back and wanders the wilderness with faith. And then he leads the people to take the promised land with faith. His whole life is a story of faithfulness. If you're in here today and you've lived a life of faithfulness, keep doing it. If you're in here and you're one of the young people that come to church with us, you're looking down what the rest of your life looks like. Let me encourage you to let what you do today prepare you for what God is going to do in you tomorrow. That living a life of faithfulness right now has more value than you could ever imagine. We got to talk about grace. You know, the book of Joshua foreshadows the grace we see in the gospel. Numbers shows that these people were not worthy into the promise of God. They were not worthy to enter into the promise of God. And Joshua, these people are still not worthy to enter into the promise of God, but God gives them grace. He allows them to enter into the land and he allows them to take it anyways, based on his goodness, not theirs. That's what grace is. Because of Jesus, we have grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Grace is amazing that I have grace, that like Rahab, that God could still use me, that, that no matter where you've been, no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what kind of stuff you've hidden away in your past, God can use you, transform you, do amazing things with you. Praise God for the goodness of his grace. But grace is not to be abused. A lot of times we know about God's grace or we learn about it and then we just think, well, I can go on and do whatever I want because I'll be forgiven by God and I can still go on and, and be, I can be redeemed. I can do amazing things tomorrow. I'll just do a good thing. I'm gonna have me a fun time tonight and then I'll do some good things tomorrow. God will use me. And that kind of abuse of grace robs you of blessings that God has for you. A life lived of faithfulness like Joshua is a better life to live. Final thing is this, you have a choice. At the end of the book, Joshua asked the people, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We get to make that choice as well. The narrative of the Bible so far has the people moving towards a physical promise, the promise of a place. And in that place, they will have the presence of God near to them. But it's not going to be enough. The next thousand years are going to show us that it's not enough. Because to be near to God isn't enough. 
if you really want to fill the longing in your heart, if you want to feel satisfied, have a full and happy life, you need to have the presence of God within you, around you, ahead of you, beside you. And today that is possible because of Jesus. He made a way for us to enter into the real promise. And it's more than land. It's a satisfied life, sometimes a hard life, but a satisfied life. Tim Keller, once again, said, the gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. So as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you're in here today on the edge of that choice, and you're ready to be used by God, to step into faith, to live a better life. All you have to do is make that same choice. Because of Jesus, it's as simple for you today as entering into relationship, which begins the same way as every relationship you've ever entered into with a conversation. We call it prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're ready to start that relationship today, pray this with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it my own way. Forgive me for the mistakes that I've made. I believe in you. I want to serve you. All that I am, I'm giving it to you, God. As for me, I will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.